Hello Saints, Todd here with SafeguardYourSoul.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are so blessed to have these moments together in the Word of God. And remember, Saints, there's nothing, there's nothing, no thing happening on God's planet that is even remotely as important as the work of the gospel and feeding the sheep of Jesus Christ for whom he died to save so that they can grow in grace, they can be edified, they can be equipped for the work of the ministry according to the scriptures. And let me just guarantee you this one thing, by the grace of God, this outreach will continue to unapologetically endeavor to preach the whole of the word of God, regardless of who gets offended or not in Jesus name. And please remember that your prayers and support are vital to this operation. Thank you. The seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. Obviously, these seven statements from our Savior, the prophesied Messiah, and culminating his work on earth, dying on the cross for our sins. The seven things he said there obviously hold great significance in the mind and the kingdom of Christ, having been sent by the Father, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Lessons from Jesus's words on the cross, saints. How do these seven sayings apply to our personal lives? What final statements did Jesus make on the cross and what do they mean? What do they mean to us? First and foremost, in the divine economy, our Lord Jesus said seven things while he was offering his body and precious sinless blood to buy us back to God. Because after the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden, man was separated from God. And we see that all the way back in the third chapter of Genesis, where the record of the fall of man is recorded right after that, verse 15, is the first prophecy of the coming Redeemer to restore the relationship that had been broken by sin back together, to mend it, to bring it back together. And when God sought for a man who could stand in the gap, he found none. Ezekiel 22, 30. No man was worthy until the Son of God from heaven came and died on the cross for our sins. He is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. So the first thing that Jesus said on the cross, the first of the seven that we're going to look at, here it is. Number one, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why hast thou forsaken me? Obviously, what does that really mean? Well, Jesus was forsaken that we might be forgiven. Isaiah 53 makes that clear, that Jesus was forsaken so that we might be forgiven. This concerned those who hung him on the cross in the immediate context and how he became the sin bearer, not a sinner, but the sin bearer, the sin sacrifice and how the father could not look on sin. So he temporarily turned his head from the Messiah. Jesus was forsaken that we might be forgiven. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, we read how that he that was without sin died for those who were the sinners. That's all of us. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he hath made him to be sin or the sin sacrifice for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Also in verse 19, 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. 
That means on the cross, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. And that's all coming from the truth that Christ died for the sins of the world. He who is just died for the unjust. First Peter 3.18, Christ also hath once suffered for sins. Christ and no other died for the sins of mankind. The just for the unjust. There it is, the just. Jesus was the just one, the righteous one, and he died in our place. He died for the unjust as a propitiatory sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, that is, when he died on the cross, but quickened or made alive by the Spirit. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. So, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46. The Father forsook the Son for just a moment in order that we might be forgiven. Again, Isaiah 53. All right, the number two thing that we're going to talk about for just a moment that Jesus said while dying for our sins on the cross is this, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. Now, before we do that, how did the first thing, how does the first thing, Jesus, apply to our personal lives? Well, there's going to be times when it seems as though God has forsaken us maybe seasons of our lives when we don't hear as well from the Lord and he seems distant or like he has forsaken us. Well, Paul cried out to the Lord and prayed three times that the Lord would remove the thorn in his flesh through this difficult season. And God told him, spoke to him, Jesus did, and said that my grace is sufficient for you. That is, in that season, the grace of God, the divine influence on our hearts and the divine enablement of God is going to be with us. He will never leave nor forsake us. We read in Hebrews 13, 5, in each life of every believer, without exception, there's going to be a time or times, I should say, of stripping and humbling and chastening purging us because we're his and whom the Lord loves, he chastens and he has a greater work to do in us so that he could do a greater work also through us. Job, Joseph, godly men like this, whom the Lord said were godly men had to go through these seasons of stripping. So where does that leave us? Well, that means we're going to go through them also. And it's a sign of the love of God for us. And he's not going to forsake us. And in those hours, as he did not forsake Jesus, that is, he was with him in grace during this time of suffering for our sins so that we might be forgiven. There could not have been a decisive breach, if you will, in the love between the Father and the Son while Jesus was dying for us. As one writer put it, the Father did not abandon, forsake, despise, reject, or rage against his only begotten Son. The love between the Father and the Son held firm at the cross. And it holds firm for us as it did for Jesus that the Father is with us and will never leave nor forsake his children. Hallelujah. All right, the second thing Jesus said on the cross, Luke 23, 34, forgive them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So Jesus prays 
that those who hung him on the cross, which would include all men thereafter who were separated from God for sin and, and the reason why Jesus went to the cross, that would apply to all of us. So Jesus says of those specifically in the immediate context who had hung him on the cross, the Jews who had cried out for his death and the Romans who the Gentiles who actually did the crucifying of the Son of God, Father, forgive them for they know not not what they do. You see, Jesus asked the Father to forgive them, a token of what his shed blood would pay for and facilitate, that is, the forgiveness of sin for all who would come to him on his terms to be saved. The sacrificial death of the Son of God satisfied the claims of the Father's justice to justify mankind, because it was a perfect sinless sacrifice, as was depicted in the Old Testament through the sacrifice of animals, which merely prefigured the coming Messiah. And John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, not a lamb, but now the definite article, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, John 1 29. And that's what he was doing when he was dying on Calvary's cruel cross, on the altar of the cross. He was dying for the sins of the world, for my sins, for your sins, offering the perfect sacrifice. Again, Luke 23, 34, the second of the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, how does this apply to you and I? Matthew 5, 44 comes to mind. It says, love your enemy. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross here, right? And that's what he's teaching here. Matthew 5, 44 is taught throughout the New Testament by Christ and his apostles. The absolute necessity of forgiving others. God says, if you don't forgive others, you are not forgiven. Mark 11, 25 and 26. If you die with unforgiveness toward one person, you're going to spend eternity separated from God in a place where we call hell. So make sure that there's no one in your life that you haven't forgiven. That doesn't mean it's easy to forgive, but we can't do it in the flesh. We must do it through the crucified life that Jesus has prescribed that we live, where we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. When you're dead, your life is hid with Christ and God, Colossians 3, 3. And you can't harbor unforgiveness toward anyone. You may need to stop today and pray, Lord, help me to forgive this person that hurt me. All right. So Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, verse 44, he says this, love your enemies. Boy, if that isn't radical, right? Do what to your enemies? Love them. This is a great verse to write on an index card and, and to memorize things and to be able to meditate on it, to be brought back to, you know, just because a truth and a scripture ministered to us last week, last month, or even yesterday, doesn't mean it is alive as it should be today. It must be meditated upon, Joshua 1.8. We're to meditate on the Word of God so that we may be prosperous and successful in this life, that is, in being in the will of God and being Christ-like. And being Christ-like is to forgive others. Here's the Son of God on the cross, having been perfect in His life and unjustly accused by his own people who he came to save and hung, nailed hands and feet to a wooden cross in the middle of this excruciating pain. 
Jesus said, forgive them, Father, please. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Love your enemies. Why? Because they know not what they do. you got to understand that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? But against principalities, against powers, the powers of this world, and spiritual wickedness in high places. In other words, Satan and angels. And they operate through others as their human agents who still have sin in their lives and therefore lash out and are used by Satan to attack the righteous. Jesus promised that as he was persecuted, so shall we be over and over in his teachings. John 15, 7, etc. John 15, 20, as they have persecuted me, they're going to persecute you because you're my children. But he says, love your enemy. Who are we to love? We are to love our enemies. In another place, Jesus says that what good have you done by loving those who know you, those that you know? You've done nothing good. That's natural. But you are to love even your enemy. Bless them that curse you. Do what to those that curse you? Those who slander you, those who lie about you, those who bring up a past sin you committed or that they're at least saying you committed. You're to love them. I am to love them. And we're to bless them that curse us. We're to do good to them that hate you. Do good to them and pray for them, which despitefully use you and persecute you. There it is. It's very important, saints, when we're tempted to, when we're hurt because somebody has done us wrong, to take it to prayer. This is a lesson I personally have to continue to learn. That's why each morning I love to pray that God would help me and those I pray for, that he would give each of us a heart of flesh, amen, and to take away the stony places. Jesus was the ultimate example of having a heart of flesh. Ezekiel chapter 36, 24 through 26. That is a heart of flesh being displayed on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do do. That's how that would apply to our lives. There's many more scriptures on forgiveness. In fact, on Safeguard Your Soul, we have a category drop-down menu, and there's a category called mercy. There's also one called forgiveness. And as we have received mercy from God undeservingly, while we were yet sinners, the Lord Jesus, the Father, having sent his only begotten Son, while we were yet sinners, Romans 5 verse 8, he came and died for us. And we are commanded and required by God to return that same mercy to others. In fact, James says he shall have judgment without mercy that has shown no mercy. James 2.13. I don't know about you. I don't want judgment from God coming down on me. So I better have my dump truck full of mercy and ready to hit that lever, baby, and just dump it out. You know, people come back to you after they've wronged you and you've wronged people and you have to go to them. When they say, brother, sister, will you please forgive me for ABC that I did to you or said about you? And you and I, if we're in the right state of heart. We're abiding in Christ. We're going to immediately say, absolutely, dear sister, dear brother, you're totally forgiven. God bless you, man, and just enjoy the love of God in that fellowship. Listen, we need forgiveness ourselves. We do. All of us decay. In many things we offend all, James said in James 3. And notice this. Put on, therefore, Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, 
kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another. See, people have to forbear you. That could be a task at times, if you like me. You're not always easy to forbear. Neither am I, or neither are those you know and that are your friends and your Christian fellowship partners, if you will. Other members of Christ's body. Realize, though, put the shoe on your own foot in light of the golden rule. Inasmuch as you would that men do to you, do you even so to them. See, you want men to forgive you freely, right? When you are hard to deal with, you do or say something you should. And Therefore, we should be that way in every direction toward others, forbearing one another. I don't know about you, I get excited about the opportunity of God putting more mercy toward me when I show mercy, when somebody asks for it or they need it, everyone does, including in beginning with ourselves, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, work it out and let there be forgiveness. Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. That's Colossians 3, 12 and 13. One more, Jesus, uh, Paul says this. He says, be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has given you. Notice God forgave us for Christ's sake on the behalf of Christ. It's perfect sacrifice, not on any merit of our own, that is Ephesians 4.32. The number three thing of the seven that Jesus said on the cross, verily, truly, that means truth, I say unto you, I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Who is he talking to? Luke 23.43. You remember that there were two thieves, one on each side of Jesus. They flanked him, if you will. There were three crosses. Christ was in the middle, and he had two criminals, two sinners. That's what we all are without Christ. And so you might recall the conversation where one of those sinners rejected Christ, and then the other one, the thief on the cross, who is historical in his life and the way it ended is absolutely preserved as a memorial for all of us and breathes great hope into all of us. I talked to a dear brother I hadn't talked to in a while this week, recently, and it seems to be happening a lot. I'm getting a lot of contacts from people I knew and were close to years ago, and we were enjoying talking about how it's not how you start, it's not how you do really as you get going with Christ after being saved. There's a lot of things we can say, praise God, he was working through me on, but as we look back, there's also things that we can all say, wow, Lord, that was not good. But, you know, the good thing is that it is really in the kingdom economy how you finish that count. And this is a perfect example. Here's a man who lived a sinful life, was a criminal, and this thief on the cross, and how he believed on Christ in the very last breaths or breath of his existence on the earth. And Jesus said that today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Why? Because, see, salvation is based on the merit, the perfect sacrifice of Christ, and that being something that's appropriated by the sinner. And it was. It was rejected by one of those sinners that flanked Christ, having been hung that day next to Christ, and it was received, the mercy of God was received by the other one. And it was very simple at how he believed on Christ, and Jesus gave him the promise today, 
shalt thou be with me in paradise. This man, 2,000 years later, is still enjoying the bliss of heaven in a, in a million years in, on earth's time clock. Not one second will have expired. See, this man will be with Christ and with the body of Christ forever. Signed, sealed, delivered. This promise of forgiveness and eternal comfort given by Jesus to the thief on the cross in his final moments is the same promise for all who come to him to be saved. Jesus said in John 6:47, He that believeth hath presently possesses hath everlasting life. John 6:47. The Bible says, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the thoughts of men the things which God has prepared for those that love him. And you can read about them and some of the details thereof in Revelation 21, the New Jerusalem, and how God is going to dwell with us there, God and Christ. And that He's going to wipe away every tear, every tear. There'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, no more sin, nothing negative. Hallelujah. As we are experiencing presently in this fallen world. That's how it applies to us, saints. We can look forward to being in paradise with great anticipation. In fact, in these last days, as we see so many signs, so many fulfillments of the return of Christ, Jesus said, when you see all these things come to pass, lift up your head and look up, for your redemption draws nigh. Jesus is coming soon, saints. Ready or not, we're going to be forever with him in paradise. Number four, the fourth of the seven things Jesus said on the cross, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. This is another prophetic utterance. Luke 23, 46. Father, into thine hands I commend my spirit. He's quoting from Psalm 31, 5. So Jesus closes his life on earth with the prophetic words of this psalm, Psalm 31, 5, a messianic utterance, prophecy. Speaking to the Father, he's saying, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. We see his complete trust in the Father, Jesus, that is, his total trust in, of the Father. And as he trusted the Father, every waking, every sleeping, every moment on the earth, Jesus said he never did anything that he didn't first see and hear the Father do and say. John 5, verse 30, etc. Jesus entered death in the same way he lived each day of his life on earth, offering up his life as the perfect sacrifice and placing himself into the Father's hands. Luke 22, 42, Jesus said, Not my will, but thine be done. So in the beginning of this last event, where he was in the Garden of Eden, knowing that his time to be hung on the cross had come, he cried out to the Father as he sweated blood and said, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. So he resubmitted himself to the Father afresh. And then in his dying breath, Father, into thine hands I commend my spirit. You know, how does this apply to us, saints? Think about it. If you're like me, you think about that last moment. How is it going to be? How is it going to happen? And the unknowing, if you will, and, and experience. We've only lived on the earth. We haven't crossed over into eternity yet. And so there's human fears or thoughts and 
trepidations. And so we need to know as we walk in the spirit and we walk in the light as he is in the light and have fellowship with him, one with another, you and the father and Christ, first John 1, 7, that the transition is going to be beautiful. No matter how it happens on this side of it, immediately when your spirit is released from your temporal body, you're going to be in the presence of the father and the son and all the holy angels and saints of God in heaven. And so you can say with Jesus, Father, into thine hands, I commend my spirit. I submit myself to you. I love you, Lord. You know, that's the beloved Stephen cried out in the end of Acts 7 as he cried out to the Lord. And it says he fell asleep. Sounds like God just took him. That's what it sounds like to me. I don't mean to be getting outside of the bounds of Scripture, but notice when they heard these things, the wicked, that is, that were getting ready to murder Stephen, just like they had killed Christ, and Christ cried out, Lord, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, as we've already reviewed as one of the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. But he, verse 55, that is, the beloved Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, saints, are you full of the Holy Ghost today? We have a message, I believe, encourage you on Satan. SafeGuardYourSoul.com called Full of the Holy Ghost. We need to be full of the Holy Ghost. He looked up into steadfastly into heaven, Stephen did, and saw the glory of God. And notice Jesus standing, not sitting, standing on the right hand of, the, of God. Notice Jesus was, what does that illustrate? Jesus was welcoming him. Come on, my baby boy. I love you. Incredible. So he commended his self, spirit, unto the Father and the Son. Jesus having been raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father, the scripture says, he now stands up and gave Stephen a glimpse. That's why he spoke it out. He saw the glory of God. He saw it. And it was a revelation. And Jesus standing on the right hand of God. What a blessing. Jesus stands to applaud those who do not deny him, but endure to the end in love and in worship and in abiding fellowship with him. And said, Behold, I see the heavens open, Stephen said, and the Son of Man standing again on the right hand of God. That's the anticipation. That means he was anticipating with great eagerness and joy to receive his son Stephen into eternal glory. And that's what he's going to be doing for each of us, each of his saints. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and what stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the young man's feet, at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. Saul participated in the murder, the martyrdom of the beloved Stephen. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, Stephen was not down, and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. There it is. See, this is a type or a following of Christ saying, where he commended into your hands, Father, I commend my spirit. Stephen says, Lord Jesus. See, Jesus is now already with the Father at the right hand of the Father, and he's standing, and Stephen says, receive my spirit. What a prayer. Prayers don't have to be fancy, friends. God would probably rather than be just simple and sincere, authentic, just like the thief on the cross. If you read that account about, go back and read the four gospel accounts when Jesus was dying on the cross. Man, this dude barely said anything, and Jesus said that, and today you will be with me in paradise. Same here. Very simple. Receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried 
with a loud voice. This is as they're stoning him. And he said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Amen. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. God, I don't know. It sounds like he, God just said, let's go. It's over. I don't even know if God let him feel the pain of those stones. I'm just saying, it's speculation. So lay not this sin, these sins to their charge, which covers what we've already talked about. Forgive them the second of the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Receive my spirit. We can pray before we die. We should. We can commend our spirit, if you will, our lives into the hands of God. I love to pray nearly every day. Lord, into your hands I commend my spirit. You must increase, but I must decrease. If it's in the word, friends, you can pray it. God will hear it and he will do it. Hallelujah. So that's how that would apply to our lives. As we see in the life of Stephen emulating Christ and also daily, that's the thought, Lord. Consume me. Take over my life. You increase. Let me decrease. Into your hands I commend my spirit. The cross is not trying harder. It's really just surrendering to God. Not trying harder, but rather dying deeper. So you're out of the way, and Christ is reigning supreme in your personal daily life. That's when things begin to rock. That's the game changer right there. All right, number five of the seven things Jesus said on the cross. Woman, here it is, John 19, 26 through 27. Woman, behold thy son. And then to John, he said, behold thy mother. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Jesus, looking down from the cross, will still feel filled with the concerns of a son for the earthly needs of his mother. You recall, and you know from Scripture, that none of his half-brothers or sisters, of which Mark 6, 3 tells us there were at least six. Jude and James were two of them. They wrote books in the end of the New Testament canon, but none of them at that time were there to care for her. So he gave this task to the Apostle John. And here's where we see Christ's humanity on the cross, asking John to look after his mother. How does that apply to us? Well, not in the primary way, but in a supplementary fashion. We are to honor our parents and to help those around us. There's a lot said about that I won't go into now. We go into detail on a post called, let's see, it is called Counting the Cost, I believe it's called. Yeah, Counting the Cost. You can search that on safeguardyourself.com. All right, the sixth thing Jesus said on the cross of the seven, I thirst, John 19, I thirst. Jesus refused the initial drink of vinegar, gall, and myrrh offered to alleviate his suffering. We read that in Matthew 27, 34, etc. But here, several hours later, we see Jesus fulfilling the messianic prophecy found in Psalm 69:21. I thirst. So what is the speculation, if you will, the reason why Jesus said, I thirst on the cross, the sixth of the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, I thirst. See, Jesus said, I thirst from the cross because he wanted his, as it's again speculated, he wanted his lips and throat moistened to utter his final victorious shout as he died, which we're going to finish with in just a minute. It's the seventh saying of Jesus and the final saying of Jesus on the cross, which is, it is finished. So Jesus had died, had been hanging on the cross for hours and was getting ready to give up the ghost as he declared, it is finished. The death of Jesus Christ finished his work of redemption, atonement, and reconciliation. And through Christ's substitutionary sacrificial death on the cross, the Lamb of God paid our debt our sin debts that we owe. See, we owe a debt we cannot pay, but Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. 
Hallelujah. He died, that is, the just for the unjust to bring us to God the Father. 1 Peter 3.18, our ransom complete, it was complete in Christ's death. It is finished, amen, paid in full. Jesus, with the resounding voice, wanted all people to hear these words. That is, it is finished. Hanging on the cross, Jesus suffered bitter agony and darkness while covered in our guilt, our sin, our shame. When the act of purchasing our redemption on the cross was complete, nothing more was needed. Everything Jesus had come to do on earth was now finished. The scriptures were fulfilled. Christ's work was done. The battle was over. The victory was won. All that God had purposed and all the prophets had foretold was complete. And Jesus surrendered himself in death. Immediately, but first, before he did that, he said, I thirst. So right after receiving the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up the ghost, John 19.30. There is another very practical reason why he said, I thirst. And it's the one we're talking about now. The Lord asked for a drink so that he might clearly and powerfully declare his final statement, it is finished. Now, there might be saints other insights into this. This is not an exhaustive teaching, but it is helping us all with our Christology, our study of Christ, the one we are purchased and found and saved by and into his family. And these seven sayings are a great, very important foundation. And they tell and reveal a lot about Christ and the Father and the kingdom of heaven and our own place, our own with God and the application thereof. So number seven, it is finished. It is finished. I would call that the three most powerful words ever spoken because that was the up to this point, the culmination of the redemption of God in Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world back to himself, 2 Corinthians 5, 19. And after he gave up the ghost. He, in John 19.30, said it is finished and gave up the ghost. Then he was buried and raised again from the dead. So it is finished. This means paid in full. The sin debt for all was fully satisfied in the perfect sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate price was paid to satisfy the claims of the Father's justice to redeem fallen mankind. Isaiah 53.11 says that God was satisfied. He would be satisfied at the sacrifice, perfect offering of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. He uses that word satisfied in Isaiah 53.11, prophetically speaking of the Messiah. And that's a chapter I highly recommend. Your Christology, that's got to be the most foundational passage in the whole Bible for Christology. And it was prophetic of Christ. It was prophetic of the Messiah. And every bit of it was fulfilled in the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, John 1.29. And that's never more true than in this statement of Jesus. It is finished or paid in full. So let's talk about it is finished. John 19.30, when Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. What was accomplished by Jesus on that cross? What did Jesus finish on the cross? That's the ultimate question, isn't it? What exactly was finished at the cross? What did Jesus fulfill? What did Jesus finish? What did the Son of God accomplish by dying for our sins on the cross? Now, I'm going to say this up front, that there is much divine truth locked up in these three words. And we're certainly not going to do anything but scratch the surface 
of this, but it is finished to be something we explore, we study out in Scripture. In fact, we've got a post called It Is Finished on SafeGuardYourSoul.com. It is finished, final, paid in full. So what exactly is finished? There are a few things that I'm going to share with you that are finished. I don't necessarily know this, that this is a, an exhaustive list, but it's a good one. The work of redemption is finished. The work of redemption is the first thing that is finished. Jesus said this before he went to the cross, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. So the work of redemption, he is the redeemer. And the Bible speaks of his redemption, that is, his redeeming of us, fallen sinful man. For example, Colossians 1.14 says, In whom we have redemption, and this is how we have it, through his blood, which he was shedding here on the cross when he said, It is finished. Even the forgiveness of sins. So forgiveness of sins only comes when we redeem, when we repent and receive Christ. There's a lot of people that are religious around the world, like the Catholics, etc., that pray for forgiveness, but they're not going to God on his terms. And therefore, they've never been forgiven of any of their sins. See, that happens when you're redeemed, when you repent and receive Christ from that moment forward. At that instant, I should say, your sins are forgiven and not before. Notice the new versions removed through his blood, you see. That's how redemption happens. It's only through the blood of Christ. That's Colossians 1.14. If your so-called Bible does not have through his blood in Colossians 1.14, my friend, I want to encourage you to burn it and get a real Bible. Get the King James Bible. Again, that's Colossians 1.14. What is exactly is finished is our question as we come to a close here. The Mosaic Covenant with its priesthood, temples, sacrifice is all over. It's obsolete. You see, those only prefigured prophetically what Christ fulfilled. Romans 10.4 says, I like 10.4 because remember on the CBs they used to say, 10.4 good buddy, in other words I'm checking out of here. But Romans 10.4 says, Christ is the end, it's over, of the law for righteousness. That's key wording to everyone that believes. So Christ is the end. He, all of those things in the law, the ordinances, the types, and the sacrifices, etc., they only prefigured and prophetically looked forward to what Christ was going to do on the cross. And when he was on the cross, he said, it is finished. The law of righteousness is finished. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly, the only one who ever did, and then nailed it to the cross and took it out of our way. Colossians 2, 14 through 19. The third thing that is finished is the curse of the law. Galatians 3, verse 13 and 14 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. That's what he was. He was made to be sin for us, that we might be made righteous. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every man that hangeth on the tree, that the blessing of Abraham, that is, salvation by faith, might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith, just like Abraham. Abraham was justified through faith. Romans 4, Hebrews 11, etc. Now, the word of faith, wolves, I mean, these guys are so greedy and wicked. They turn this into Abraham's blessings being his monetary, his material possessions, if you can believe that. That's a sickening, heretical, diabolical, antichrist lie. The blessing of Abraham is justification by faith, saints. 
read Romans 4, and it's all over for those animals, those wicked devils that teach you that God may, you know, wants to make Jesus came and died to make you rich on the earth. That's ridiculous. Jesus warned against being rich on the earth. He taught to be givers. So that's another thing that is finished. The curse of the law, being commanded, told what's right, and yet not having the grace of God to accomplish that, the divine enablement of Christ. See, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, John 1.17. The next thing, what exactly is finished? Sin is finished. Jesus came to take away the sin of the world in the sense that it was all placed upon Christ, that is past, present, and future. Sin is finished. Now, to appropriate that forgiveness, we must repent and be saved, and we're forgiven completely at initial salvation. But we also have to walk in the light as he is in the light, having fellowship one with another, the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, cleansing us from all sin in order to continue to receive forgiveness of sin and confess, if we confess those sins, that we might commit along the way. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John 1, verse 7 and 8 and 9. What else is finished? The prophecies and the types and shadows concerning the Messiah's death, they're finished. Notice Luke 24, 44. So after Jesus rose from the dead, he was speaking to his disciples, Luke 24, 44, and he said, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things might be fulfilled. Notice that's a very important part of the divine economy, prophecy and the fulfillment thereof. And that's why we know the Bible is the only holy book on the planet, because thousands, and hundreds of years before things were fulfilled, God spoke them from the beginning, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. He declares the end from the beginning, which only the Almighty could do. He alone knows the future, and that alone, none of the other counterfeit so-called holy books can lay claim to this, which completely debunks them as being from God at all. And also, we have a post on this topic, very, very important and exciting post about the only holy book. Look up holy book, search holy book on safeguardyoursoul.com. So Jesus said, all things, I spoke these things, that all things might be fulfilled, or things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. In other words, the Old Testament scriptures. Scripture was fulfilled in Christ. He completed all the prophecies. He fulfilled them, the types and shadows. In his dying, it is finished. The old fallen creation, which is placed in Christ, that is, God's purposes are now centered on a new creation in Christ. What else is finished? Satan's dominion and hold over mankind is finished. Jesus, by dying, and that goes right here with the culmination of it when he said it is finished and gave up the ghost, he conquered death. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 is one of the places we see that. And we read here that Jesus says, it says of Jesus, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, that's all of mankind after Adam and Eve. He also, Christ, the word was made flesh. He also himself likewise took part of the same. God was manifested in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16, and he did that through death, through death, through dying, through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. So that's what was finished also when Jesus said, it is finished. That's part of what he meant. Here's another one, Jews and Gentiles. 
in Christ, we are one body now, so we're not separate. We're one body, and the body of Christ, made up of Jews and Gentiles, is the Israel of God. Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, the Israel of God. Notice in John 10, also Jesus, speaking of himself being the good shepherd, says this, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Amen. One fold, one body of Christ, and Jesus Christ is the only shepherd or great shepherd of the sheep, Hebrews 13, 20. He's the only head over the body, the book of Colossians says. So those are some of the things that were meant by it is finished. The whole council or testimony of scripture reveals that Jesus came to the earth and did accomplish perfect salvation by perfectly fulfilling the law. And he did away with it. And it was against us. He took it away. He abolished it and nailed it to the cross, taking it out of the way. In fact, 2 Corinthians 3, 13 speaks about the law as that which is abolished. And it's abolished for righteousness. No man can be saved or made righteous by the law. If that were the case, Christ died in vain. Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. So how does it is finished apply to us on a personal basis as we walk with Christ? Well, one of the ways it applies is that we live by by faith, not by law-keeping, for the Bible says what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. So Jesus, in saying it is finished, he condemned sin in the flesh as he offered his perfect blood, a perfect sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. We're not to live in sin. In fact, Romans 6, 1 and 2, to those that are saved, the apostle Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. He answered his own question. We do not have a license for sin. We must walk in the light, 1 John 1, 7, as he is in the light, and it's then that we have fellowship one with another with him, and the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us from all sin. See, the cleansing of sin is not only initial, but it's ongoing, the necessity to have your sins cleansed. That's the program of God and salvation, whereas most of the evangelical church world limits the salvation of Christ as it applies to us. Just that initial event where we're born again and our sins are washed away. But the Bible teaches more than that. It says if, if, notice if, it's conditional, we walk in the light, that is after we're saved, as Jesus, he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, that is fellowship with him. And what's the result? The blood of his son, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He goes on to say, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us, hence the need to walk in the light. And verse 9, to confess our sins. If we can notice, if it's not automatic. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We must abide in Christ, John 15. If we don't, we're going to be cast into the fire. That would be the fires of eternal damnation, John 15, verse 6. So let us live by faith and not by law, saints. Living by law and not faith is an abomination to God. We must walk by faith and not by sight. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Thank you for listening, saints. God bless you. Thank you for praying for the fruitfulness of this ministry outreach and for the supply. We'd love to be in your prayers. We covet them. God bless you.
Thank you for listening. Well, brothers and sisters, it's been a blessing to spend these moments with you in the Word of God. And remember, there's hundreds of more Christ-centered, scripture-rich, edifying podcasts on safeguardyoursoul.com forward slash audios. There's also a store page with several many books on there for your edification in Christ. They're all scripture-rich and Christ-centered. Also, tens of thousands of saints and sinners are being reached every month, and your prayers are coveted for the fruitfulness and supply of this outreach. God be praised, by the way, for those who are supporting, and feel free to visit our donate page on the site, and you can use your debit card, PayPal, or Patreon, and you can become a monthly sustaining member if you choose to do so, and a gift of any amount is so appreciated. Part of this outreach is to equip and supply other ministering disciples across our our great country and all over the world. And may God be praised that there's fruitfulness happening among his people and through his beloved saints as we know that the return of our Lord Jesus Christ draws nigh. And we say together in the words of Revelation 22, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.